Welcome to Losing My Religion, podcast for and about you. It's the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, and who used to be a student for the priesthood. Yes, I have come a long way. It is ten past five in the morning, Thursday, the 13th of August, 2020. Last night, the Humanist Association of Ireland had a very interesting online event looking at the teaching of religion in schools. A lady was doing guidelines for this and was considering people who are not of the majority religion or who are of no religion and the dilemmas that poses for teachers and pupils and for their parents. It was also about teachers who are not religious and their requirement in many cases to sign up to a clause or a a test to show that they have done this religious qualification. In the second episode of my memoir, I look at how I caught faith because religious people often talk about how faith isn't taught. Faith is caught. You catch the faith. And here we are in COVID-19 lockdown, and I cannot help but see the analogy between faith and a virus. We catch the faith and we catch a virus. Nobody intentionally catches COVID-19. I don't believe that anybody intentionally catches religious faith. And for most of us, for the vast majority of religious people, we catch faith religious faith in childhood. And like COVID-19, religious faith is highly infectious. We're susceptible to it. We have a propensity to believe. As children, we believe our parents because they know so much more than we do. We trust them. There's so much we don't understand. And we absorb so much fact and fiction before we have the ability to distill and determine what is fact and what is fiction. And often faith is there as a way of controlling us. Holy God will punish you if you do that, because the parent can't watch the child all day long. And my mother, who was highly religious, unthinkingly religious, she never questioned. She just believed, she just uncritically accepted everything she had been taught. And on one occasion I had misbehaved and I don't even remember what I had done. But it was something which any adult would have quickly surmised what had happened. It was a minor misdemeanor. And even though my mother had not witnessed the unremarkable incident, she knew I had done it, as pretty much any parent with any sense would. And I asked her, how did you know that? I was awestruck by her seeming access to divine omniscience, knowing everything. And her answer to me was, Holy God told me. And her lie made a deep impression on my young mind. And the myth of God was taking root in me. It was catching. Faith isn't something of the mind. It's something of the heart. It's only later that we study religion or are taught what used to be called religious knowledge and then religious education, religious instruction and religious studies. And in fact, that was part of the discussion 
last night, what do you call it? I suggested the best name for the subject at secondary level should be religion and philosophy. Religious instruction clearly suggests you're trying to impart the so-called facts, the pseudo-facts. Religious instruction is a ghastly phrase. Some of the documents from the state with regard to this subject use the phrase religious instruction. And we discussed also how even the ETBs, the Education Training Board schools, many of them have a remit to impart religious instruction. Seemingly many of the newer ones don't. And they are more conscious of the need to be secular or at least not to favour one religion over another. So what's been going on in my life? Well, my wife and I, we bought ourselves a tiny caravan. Now when I say tiny, I mean tiny. It's shorter than the length of our car. We set out initially to see if we could afford to buy a camper van. Because with COVID about, there are a lot of advantages of having a camper van or indeed a caravan. But camper vans are expensive. And those which were affordable were, well, they'd been around a long time. We had been looking at one from the mid-90s. And I thought, well, hang on a bit. I just sold a car from the 1990s. And this camper van was actually going to be older than the car I sold. And the car I sold was definitely on its last legs. So... Then we decided that caravans were relatively cheaper. And we knew our budget, which was modest. And we went looking for caravans. My missus, the love of my life, Ruth, were married 27 years. And our anniversary was on the 7th of August, a few days ago. And she has been mentioning campervan to me for a very, very, very long time. And I never quite got it. I never tweaked it, understood it. But suddenly with COVID, I thought, it's sort of making sense. We were up in Carlingford and there was a camper van there, a small little camper van. And we got chatting to the couple and they had just bought the camper van and they were all excited. And the lady, the, the woman, you say a ban on tea for the woman in the house. I don't know what the ban on, the ban of the camper van. The lady in the van, wonderful film. Anyway, she talked about how being in the camper van was wonderful for her because it was mental space for her. She couldn't do the obligations, the duties, which she would have found being at home. Ruth's eyes kind of lit up. And then I got it. I figured out that's it. It's this freedom to have a home from home, a home on wheels. And you're freed, or she is freed, from her daily grind of responsibilities her mother isn't well she's elderly ruth has been looking after her all summer visiting her four times sometimes five times a day breakfast lunch evening sometimes at night time in the middle of the night so for ruth the attraction of the the camper van or the caravan was that once she was in that she was away she had inner freedom which she needed so we've had our first holiday in our caravan. It was gas. We collected the caravan on a Friday. Our mechanic had some difficulty connecting up the lighting. It was not an easy job. And he knew we were going, wanted to go on holidays the next day. And he, I know, was up until late, 10 o'clock or something, at night, working out. Because there were all kind of things kept going wrong. And he came out trumps in the end but literally on the saturday two times twice 
on that Saturday when we still didn't know if we could actually go on the holiday because there were still difficulties with the lighting. Anyway, at one point we took the caravan away, packed it, still not knowing whether we could actually go that day and took it back to our mechanic and he succeeded. Great guy. Off we headed then on our caravan down to a colleague of mine, Willie Collins, who himself has a camper van. And Willie let us park up our caravan in his yard. And then the next morning, (laughs) the next morning, we're talking the Sunday morning, there's a very steep driveway into Willie's house. It's it's quite quite a descent or ascent, depending on which way you're going. At the very bottom of it, there is a raging river. It's a full-blown river. And when you drive down his driveway, you have to turn very promptly so as to avoid falling into the river. So all was well upon our arrival. Bear in mind, I'd never driven a caravan before. I have driven a trailer, but never a caravan. When we're leaving Willie's house the next day, Willie explained to me in great detail what I needed to do to get up the sharp ascent up his driveway there was a gate at the top which of course would be open and then one immediately finds oneself on the road so Willie was going to stand up there make sure that (laughs) that there was nothing coming on the road so I could just go right from the drive up the hill and off out onto the road but it was narrow And as anybody who has ever driven a caravan before knows, the caravan doesn't necessarily go in the same direction as the car. And so while my car cleared the gate, quite a narrow gate, the caravan did not. (laughs) And Willie called out for me to stop. And I looked back and I thought here I was, having wrecked the caravan and it not 48 hours old, and would me missus want to throw me into the river, raging below. So I had no idea what damage I had done. All I knew was the caravan and the gatepost were in contact. Luckily, Willie knew what to do. Willie and Ruth were already at the, at the caravan. I put the car into gear and handbrake up, got out of the car. We needed to disengage the caravan from the car, bearing in mind that the caravan is now at the top of the hill, has not cleared the hill. The risk is real and immediate that the caravan will roll rapidly down the hill and end up in the river. Adrenaline was pumping. So we had to decouple the caravan from the car, holding the caravan fighting the force of gravity hoping it would not plunge to its death below and having put on the handbrake of the caravan and Willie and I and Ruth holding the caravan as best we could preventing it from rolling down the hill into the river below I then had to get back into the car leaving just Ruth and Willie to hold (laughs) hold the caravan and I had to manoeuvre the car so that it was further to the left. And then we would manually haul the caravan from its close encounter with the gatepost, put it on to the car hook again, and drive away. We did that. So under Willie's watchful, essential guidance, 
we succeeded in preventing the caravan from being further damaged against the gatepost and rolling down the hill, floating on the river. We eventually arrived at our second destination, staying with friends in County Clare. And while driving along, we had on occasion heard some noises and we had stopped the caravan and we had opened the caravan and checked to see if anything had fallen, was crashing about the place. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So it was quite a mystery. Couldn't figure it out until we arrived at our friend's house, a spectacular house overlooking a lake in County Clare. And we realised, yes, Joseph had left the jockey wheel down and the jockey wheel on our new to us caravan was now smashed to smithereens. Doubtless I'm not the first novice caravan driver to make that mistake but it meant that we couldn't manoeuvre the caravan with great ease and we needed many bodies to position it and then we had to head off looking for a new jockey wheel and we got one in a co-op in County Clare. So we have called our caravan Titch. So we have hitched Titch and had our first holiday. And we loved it. It is a home from a home. So, so much for our caravan. 27 years, 27 years married. I was 18 years living at home. I was 9 years in the Marists. 18 and 9, 27. So the duration of my marriage equals the duration living at home plus the nine years in my late teens and most of my 20s studying for the priesthood where does the time go so what's going on in my life at the moment well this podcast is going on my life my memoir i have not yet found a publisher but i haven't been looking seriously for several weeks now i pitched it to a few publishers and agents i think 15 And then I got a publisher who sounded more interested than others. So we have to see how that goes. And then I had the project of getting the podcast up and running. The BBC training continues this week. The session was on creative thinking and it was really good. And the most striking element of it for me was Alex. I have to look up the girl's name. Brilliant presenter. She has a website, I think it's called leadingideas.co.uk, I'm not sure. She talked about divergence and convergence and how if you want to get in touch with creative thinking, if you want to think creatively, you have to allow yourself to think divergently. And she mentioned that the thing which prevents creative thinking is judgment. Either you or somebody else judges the idea and it gets shot down and then you're reluctant to come up with other ideas she talked about you two and the joshua tree and she said that when you two were making that magnificent album the joshua tree that they had something like seven songs that they liked and others that they didn't like and that whoever was their creative director told them to forget about the seven that they liked and to work with the ones that they didn't like And the result was the Joshua Tree. I did a wedding, conducted a wedding at Gam House on the 8th of August. It was my first wedding since the 14th of March. Who could have imagined 2020 would have been so disrupted by a virus? 
hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. We had the local lockdown in Kildare and Leash and Offaly, where with less than 24 hours notice, some weddings had to be cancelled. So it's really hard to plan anything during COVID. Personally, I wonder whether the way forward is to offer online ceremonies. There are many advantages to online ceremonies. For one, it removes the uncertainty of whether a wedding can go ahead. Now, obviously, it wouldn't be a legal ceremony if it was a wedding. But baby namings, renewal of vows, commitment ceremonies, or symbolic humanist wedding ceremonies, and so many other ceremonies can happen online using Zoom or Teams. There's the advantage that there's no travel involved. You don't have all of that expense. They could be very intimate. They could involve people from anywhere in the world who could join the ceremony online. They could also be highly effective. Again, just like with this podcast and just like with the radio, there's a tremendous intimacy with the microphone. The microphone is your friend. It's the ear of the listener. And I'm imagining and picturing meaningful, happy, emotional profound moments shared with loved ones all over the world and you could have as few people as you wish it might also help just to have the people that you really want at the ceremony but i think it could be good there won't be an immediate lockdown there won't be the risks of traveling travel travel is the same route as travail There are trials involved in travel, whether it's the risk of COVID or having to practically strip naked at security in the airport. What's the stresses of travel? Will I miss my flight? All of that. You can be free of all of that by having an online ceremony. People are at home. They don't even have to dress up. They could if they want, if you want them to. Or let it just be a casual, meaningful, personal ceremony. To remember a loved one, to celebrate the love of a man and a woman, or two men, or two women. To celebrate the birth of a baby, to formally name a baby, or to have a moment recognising a person coming of age, entering the adult world, having a ceremony to mark that. All of that can be done online, without any of the risks of covid without most of the expenses of a wedding. And you can actually distill it down to the most important thing, personal meaning of the occasion. Let's face it, if we weren't introduced to the ridiculous beliefs and dogmas of religion until we were adults, most of us wouldn't give them a second thought because they're so ludicrous. If we were first introduced to these stories and myths when we were in our mid-twenties, The notion that anybody could actually believe them would horrify us. But we are, was it the Jesuit who once said, perhaps he was quoting somebody else who said it before him, give me a a child for their first seven years. And and if you can instill in a child these notions of an imaginary friend, life after death, born into sin, the need for baptism, the fear of hell, the need for a saviour. Jesus says, what does he say from? So if, like me, you began your life in a religious family or in a religious society, it is useful 
to look back at the major relationships of your very early childhood. Personally, my mother was fanatically religious. My father was religious, but not fanatically so. He was devout. He was he was a manly man. He worked for Guinnesses. He was a docker. He was strong physically. He hadn't been educated for long in the formal schooling system. He was a believer. My mother, on the other hand, her fanatical, unthinking religiosity didn't seem to have any bearing on how she treated my two brothers, the sons of my father's first marriage. And my eldest brother, Paul, who's 11 years older than I am, he had a hard time for my mother, a very hard time. He used to run away. And on one occasion, the last occasion, he ran away for about two weeks. I was so young. He was 16 when he last ran away. So I would have been five. So I was very, very young. But I was aware of the tension at home, the tension between my mother and father. My father caught between his two sons of his first marriage and his new wife, my mother. My mother only ever referred to them as the two brats. And brat wasn't a term of endearment. Brat was spat out. Brats. Those two brats. I hope you never become like those two brats. And I got that growing up as a kid. I was terrified of growing up like those two quote-unquote brats because I saw what she did to them. One of my earliest memories as a child was when Paul had run away that last time. And I remember as if as if it was yesterday being in the tiny kitchen at home and my mother looking out the window into our back garden and at the houses to the far side of us and there was a lane at the back and there were sheds and garages and she looked out and there wasn't an ounce of compassion in her voice, in her face. And she said something like, he's doing this just to get at me. He won't win. Meanwhile, Paul was kind of living off crusts and he had some friend who was bringing him out food, letting him stay in a garage at night or something when his parents were away. And then when he did come home, my mother wouldn't let him back. And she created this huge dilemma for my father. My mother said, him or me, either he goes or I go. There was no way my mother was going anywhere. So my uncle, another Joe Armstrong, my uncle Joe Armstrong, who died not that long ago, in his 90s. He and his wife, my Auntie Cora, agreed to take Paul. So Paul moved in with my Uncle Joe, my Auntie Cora, and Cousin Derek for, I think, two years. And then he joined the army. So I have no memory or recollection of Paul from my childhood. He left when I was five. Yeah, I'm just looking here at my memoir. I have the Paul only returned to our house once during the next four years, and that was to paint a ceiling, end of quote. I remember this incident where my sister and I had been fighting, and my mother forced us to kneel before a picture of the Sacred Heart. And this picture of the Sacred Heart, whatever way you looked at it, from whichever part of the room, the eyes were always on you. But I remember as a kid, I don't know what age I was, but I was a young child looking at my mother beseeching the Sacred Heart to make us good kids, to stop us fighting. And I remember just finally, as a child, looking at her and just finding it so, was I embarrassed? I remember I giggled. I just, like my rational self, even as a kid, a young kid, was I five? I don't know, I've no idea how old I was, but as a young kid, 
It was a combination of embarrassment and amusement and incredulity. Watching my mother begging the picture on the wall to make the two of us good kids and to stop us fighting. And I just found it so incredible. And yet despite that rational self within me looking at my mother's ridiculous display of religiosity still by being exposed to it and not just from her my father's devotion we're talking the 1960s in ireland anybody and everybody i knew was catholic anybody and everybody i knew went to mass masses were packed on sundays it seemed that everybody went to confession the queues in the pews outside confessionals were extraordinary and the number of priests there were seven priests in Donny Kearney, seven priests in one parish alone. And several of them, you could have three or four or five or six of them, hearing confessions at the same time. This was just a regular Saturday. In order that we could confess our sins, be free of mortal sin, and be able to receive the Eucharist on Sunday. So the virus of faith caught me, and I believed. And that was my worldview. This God could punish me, send me to the fires of hell. So that's it for this second podcast of Losing My Religion. Please let me know where you are on your journey, whether you are losing your religion or perhaps losing your faith in another organization. You can find us on Twitter at LosingMyReligion1. That's at losing my R-E-L-I-G and the figure one. You can contact me by emailing podcast losing my religion at gmail.com. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losing my religion. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash losing my religion. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to follow us so you don't miss future podcasts. Talk to you soon. Happy days.